0: All right. This is Element Rescue. We are doing a whole series on innovation, and we're starting this thing off with Dr. Kraushorn, talking about the AAJT, and we're going to hit on some of the evolution of it, the origin of it, the evolution of it, some of the myths and BS around it. Hit some questions. So we got myself on here, and I'll be hitting it from a little bit of the rescue side. We got JJ, land pirate, rolling in from the 18 Delta side, and we have Kraushorn. So John, you and I I don't know, man, like we may, I think we met when you first were developing this. That may have been the catalyst to where you and I met uh in Greenville a while ago, but that was I don't know, what was that like two thousand five, six, something like that?
1: Yeah, I think it was uh, probably around two thousand seven, eight ish.
0: That's right. That yeah. was a long time ago. So John, real quick, obviously you have a you have a huge background, Um so obviously in the Yard ER and uh, but you came from a flight dock side, uh doing stuff uh, Oconus, Conus, and hit us up on, on just your background before we get into the uh, AEGT.
1: Yeah, sure, man. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you guys today. Um, the, uh, my, my basic background, I am a doc by training. I was an engineer before that. Um, but um, I joined the Army uh, after the towers fell as a doctor. I actually had been in the Army briefly before that, back in around the Desert Storm time frame, but um, when I joined as a doctor, uh, I joined a Mississippi Guard unit as a flight surgeon and deployed to Iraq in 2004 with Task Force 185 Combat aviation. I was the uh, brigade surgeon for the task Force. And I uh, got some great experience uh, overseas. We didn't have any medical assets. In fact, I, my entire time with the military, I never served with a medical unit. I always served with a line unit. After uh, we came back. Our unit consolidated back home in 2005, just in time to respond to Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I was the lead doctor on the ground for the first five weeks from the military's perspective in Mississippi. Um, That was a very unique experience as well. Came up with some neat solutions that uh, combined joint services with the Air Force and and Army uh, to do both Kasevac and and uh, moving patients out of hospitals uh, to make room because there were only three hospitals functioning in those south six counties of Mississippi. Maybe time for another podcast. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I, I then switched over to the special operations environment. Uh, flight surgeons in the Army go through an operational medicine course. That is what flight surgeon uh, course is. So it opened up some doors um, and uh, and then... In 2008, I switched from uh, Army Special Operations to uh, Department of Justice Special Operations Unit uh, that went um, more often, but less time. Uh, We deployed five to 45 days on average. And then uh, a couple of years after that, they tasked me back to USASOC. And um, I had the opportunity of, of doing some development work on medical devices and Body armor within the soldier soldier safety uh, side of the house, um, and uh, and then, then
0: the rest of sort of history. That's awesome. Right on. So we met, and you were developing this uh, with a partner, another doc. That was what was that? Two thousand seven, two thousand eight. The original AAT.
1: Yeah. So um, that 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 development started February twenty of two thousand seven with Richard Schwartz. Uh, who is still my partner in crime and uh, an absolutely brilliant physician. He also came out of the Army Special Operations environment uh, and um, was one of the plank holders in a advanced capability medical unit that uh, was tasked with providing urgent emergent care for some of our real special, special operations units. Um, but he uh, resides over in Augusta, Georgia, and is the director of the Emergency Department Residency Training Program uh, there that they have both a military and a civilian emergency medicine residency program.
0: If you guys, when I look at you, and and, and obviously I love Dr. Schwartzman; he's a great dude and know him for a while. But you two teaming up, if you guys would compare yourself to a mullet haircut, you you would probably be the party in the back, right? Where he was more business up front, or would you <laughs> switch that?
1: Uh, you know, I've never been asked that question, so. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I think he may actually uh, argue to be the party in the back uh, version. Okay. Uh, I actually run the the little business that we developed around the tourniquet. And uh, so he sort of jumps in and does some fun research and uh, always provides some very key information. And then the onus of trying to run a business when I'm not a business guy yeah. has been on my sh- uh But, uh, yeah, I-, I like to think I'm the fun one. But okay. <laughs> probably we'd argue
0: about that. I could see him doing that. I could see him doing that. Yeah, um I could see that.
1: But if you have to guess, you're probably
0: usually not. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I'll go. Um Sean and I go for the you know, the bad cop bad cop. So, yeah, like, you know, Actually, <laughs> party in the front, party in the back. Business all the time. I don't yeah. know. Like yeah, it's bad. a
0: part yeah, it's 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 all time. Um and it is. It is. We we don't uh we don't diversify ourselves well. Um, once once start, guy starts being a jackass, both of us become that same jackass. Um, yeah. It just becomes on a multitude of scale with an exponent on it. So um, so real quick, uh, I'm gonna let kind of JJ uh, hit a lot of the 18 Delta side stuff because um, there's a this is a big history behind this uh, and there's been some real interesting misinformation that's come out on from studies um, studies that probably weren't. Done exactly right. Um, the context being screwed up. Uh, I've definitely had quite a bit of interaction with some folks concerning junctional hemorrhage and rescue, and it's freaking critical. But I, w- I was astonished when when that problem came up years and years ago when I talked to you about it. And so I'll kind of I'll kind of veer off a little bit more towards on the rescue side. And JJ hit a lot of the. Uh, uh, straight up, uh, Delta side, 18 Delta side. And, and let's hit it, but why don't we start off with uh, Dr. Krauschel? Why don't you just start to hit us up a little bit? Because it's an interesting reason why it was, why it was created and, and where you're at right now in the evolution, and then we'll get into the research and the capabilities.
1: Sure. Uh, so, the, the, we had been teaching medics for years to put a knee in the mid abdomen to try to include blood flow down below the waist. Uh, a pretty quick intervention you can do when you see a lot of blood and and uh, you're concerned about injuries below that point, especially if it looks like they're bleeding a lot. And uh, we really wanted an option that would allow that intervention to be done without the medic having to keep their knee on uh, the patient during the time in which we were looking at this. Uh, there was a, a sentinel death in Army Special Operations. Uh, uh, Bob Horgan died June seventeenth of two thousand five, and He was wounded uh, at the breach point uh, in the pelvis. He was pulled from the breach point. The medic recognized how bad he was bleeding. Uh, A uh, a helicopter landed four minutes from the point of wounding. Uh, He gripped the medic's hand, gave a thumbs up, flew 12 minutes to an awaiting surgical team, and he was dead when he arrived. And there wasn't much that could be done to save him. There, There is a um, medical device sort of history that is able to stop this kind of bleeding or or perform the knee in the mid-abdomen. In fact, uh, the surgeon that came up with most modern surgical techniques, or at least the basis for them, uh, was a guy named Lister. And back in the Civil War, uh, he, to control bleeding in amputations and operations below the waist, uh, came up with a C-clamp-looking device called the Lister tourniquet. And uh, it sort of anchored in the back after the patient was uh, put to sleep with some ether, and so they weren't moving. And this uh, big C-clamp would be tightened down over the belly button and squeeze on the aorta. And by the end of the Civil War, uh, he said, um, uh, you know, you'll never see these again except in museums because they had at that point decided it was quicker and and more definitive to open up the abdomen, reach in, and cross-clamp the aorta. And so it went to history. Well, after Horgan's death, uh, a number of things were investigated. Uh, The Lister device, trying to do a uh, C-clamp, teaching advanced capability medics that really had some crazy advanced skills to go in and ligate, temporarily ligate the aorta uh, or other large vessels like the iliac arteries and and proximal femoral arteries uh, to be able to control hemorrhage in the pelvis and injunctional sites down below. It just turned out to be a skill set that was just very difficult to maintain competency in. So in 2006, we did a research uh, paper that – well, I said we. I I did not do it. Uh, Blavis at at, um, Augusta did a paper looking at the amount of pressure required over the mid-abdomen to occlude blood flow to the pelvis and legs it turned out that using dumbbells, ultrasound, we could show no flow in the iliac and femoral arteries with about 140 pounds of pressure over the belly button. And that was presented at the American College of Emergency Physicians Scientific Assembly meeting in New Orleans that year. And after it was presented, uh, Richard and I sat with the residents who had done the research and said, you guys need to come up with a device that does this because this is a need. And they were more interested in getting out and making money and and didn't have any desire to do any further research. And Richard and I took out a cocktail napkin. I know that sounds very cliche-ish, but we literally needed something to write down on and put put some drawings together, both a mechanical and a pneumatic. Version of uh, sort of the Lister tourniquet to see if we could replicate it, and then February of the next year in tw- in 2007 we put in the first provisional patents for both a mechanical and pneumatic option, and it just turned out that the pneumatic one was easier to stabilize, uh, and um, so uh, abandoned the sort of the provisional uh, tourniquet on the mechanical one, and we pursued the the um, uh, pneumatic one.
2: So I just want to say uh, I, I love that you did a- uh, it's not cliche at all to use the, the uh, cocktail napkin there. Uh, yeah. Some people who have listened to this may uh, actually already know. Um, I'm a huge fan of contracts on napkins, to include my Soul, which I created when I was 16, uh, <laughs> quality concert. It was going to be Ozfest, which would have made it actually worth it for me out of one. But got <laughs> Ozzy himself, no shock, got too drunk to play, so it was ended up being only Corn and Rammstein. So I like to think we both lost. You know, you got... <laughs> Got a soul that was completely useless and already been degraded, and I got a terrible concert. So, you know, it, those contracts are quality.
0: No, it is. It is solid. It's a solid background on both points. Both your points are are well received. So you hit that, and so evolution came with that. I remember actually the first evolution, which was what JJ would mistake as as a, a whip it, obviously with uh, <laughs> the inflation device on that. Brought
2: back memories. You know, it's kind of like that song that you say brings back memories. I just heard that sound. I was like, ooh, yeah, yeah I can feel the wall. Um, but apparently the patients should not feel the wall. Walls. It's usually not good. So that was a downfall.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah, so walk us, yeah, walk, us through the, uh, walk us through the evolution of uh, hitting the A-A-J-T to, you know, uh, your first kind of commercial ready type of thing.
1: Yeah, you're, you're referring to the very first version, which was the A-A-T, the abdominal yep. aortic tourniquet. Uh, it only focused on the abdomen uh, to uh, try to address the Bob Horgan type injury. After we began developing it, the Institute for Surgical Research and the military medicine apparatus identified junctional hemorrhage as their top priority uh, later in 2007. And so we sort of fit into that category. And we partnered with USASOC, U.S. Army Special Operations Command, to develop this device and for those that may be listening to the podcast that aren't initiated in what this device is it it basically is a copper bun like belt uh, that has a couple of mechanisms over time they've changed to tighten it very tight and then it has the working part is a bladder that's wedge shaped and when inflated inflates this wedge into the body cavity no matter where it's wherever it's uh targeted and placed over so there's the abdominal site, and that actually squeezes off the blood flow through the aorta and actually the IVC too. Uh, lower junctional site, so over the groin, uh, placing pressure, squeezing off the femoral arteries, or the axilla uh, in squeezing off the blood flow. Actually, mid clavicular in the subclavian artery, so we can actually stop blood flow. Uh, with shoulder disarticulation or upper junctional hemorrhage, we're actually the only junctional device that saved life in upper junctional hemorrhage. Um, and uh, there's a published case report out on uh, on that save. So the AAT was initially developed just over the abdominal site. Um, the bladder itself is RF welded like a buoyancy compensator. Uh, it's, it's it itself that that part of it is very robust and it can be used tons of times in training the the early versions had a elbow that came out of the bladder and was glued into this inflation system that had some tubing a manometer and a um uh, a five ounce handball that you would see sort of like a large bulb for a blood pressure cuff um and it, there were some issues early on with keeping the uh the seals on where that tubing met the elbow and where the elbow was arf welded and and so some of the early-on uh, devices had a little bit of leakage around that. And on single-use, when they were taken out of the package and they were used, they generally did great. It was just this reuse and reuse, and then you would start getting leakage. And, uh, and that was something that had to be worked out. In 2013, we received a second 510K FDA approval for a name change and indication change. So it went from the AAT to the AAJT. Uh, And I I just always feel embarrassed about the type of acronyms we use in the military because lay people just sort of roll their eyes when they hear these acronyms. But so we changed from the abdominal aortic tourniquet to the abdominal aortic and junctional tourniquet. And what changed in the indications is we had human uh, lives saved with both the groin and the uh, axilla applications. The Brits had already put it on a casualty in Afghanistan and saved a life in the abdominal application. And all these had been published. Uh, they were the first life saved in, in junctional uh, hemorrhage. Uh, and so we went back to the FDA and said, hey, look, they, they, it works in these areas too and let's uh look for these increased indications. And then fast forward to the current version, which really uh came online in 2018, called the Abdominal Aortic and Junctional Tourniquet, and then it has a hyphen S for stabilized and it it really has some really remarkable improvements uh the original device if anybody had a chance to play with it the controls for the device the tightening of the belt was way over on the side you almost had to roll the patient up passing or getting this around a patient sometimes the belt could get a little twisted and if you're trying to tighten it up the the belt could bind in the buckle and and then you would, the, the last part of tightening was a windlass. And you would tighten the windlass down, and it had sort of this awkward clip that you had to clip to hold the windlass in place. So we've moved away from the windlass. We've moved away from the buckle. We now use a wrapping buckle made by M2 on a couple of other medical devices. It sort of looks like a ski buckle, a uh, ski boot buckle. And it has a very long ladder strap um, that is passed under the casualty very quick. It's clipped in. To place, and then the belt is tightened, and all the controls are right in the front now. The other thing that changed is it used to have these three plastic pieces that sort of made this cummerbund to try to stabilize it, and that was changed in the AJT version uh, um, at the end of uh, that product's life cycle to a HDPE, uh, high-density polyethylene cover and we had some issues because if it was packaged drawn by the manufacturer and put under too high vacuum pressure, you could see some cracks in it. So we changed that to a low density polyethylene um, cover, and it's it's very robust. You can't break this thing. You can bend it. You can put it under pressure. You can uh, we've we've done uh, pressure and bending with vacuum pressure and temperature ranges that went from extreme cold to way hotter than anywhere on Earth and it just it seems to be very survivable. The device now is in sort of its current best state. Uh, and then, Sean, to answer your question about fielding, uh, we've, we received the first 510-K approval under emergency authorization from the FDA in 2012. Uh, we received approval in eight days. On day nine, we received an order from US Army Special Operation Command, and I didn't even have a manufacturer for the device. So we Mm. scrambled um, the devices wholly made in the United States, in uh, southern Virginia, at the same plant that produced all of the parachutes for Uh, D-Day. They they actually forever had an original packed chute from D-Day just hanging out in the open. That's now been put behind glass and, Mm. (laughs) and preserved, but... The, the company is great. It, it, so it's all made in the USA. Phil did the first probably 100 devices in May of 2013. And a number of special units took them out in the field. Uh, a number of our international partners took them out in the field. And we had the first life saved uh, within about two months after that. And then it's continued to grow in its utilization primarily – uh, with special operations units that aren't sort of tied to committee on tactical combat casualty care recommendations,
0: right? Yeah, and so obviously, you know, a lot of the work that, that I do in rescue, those groups just solely use the AHAT. But oddly enough, it was during kind of this uh, throwdown period where we we're trying a bunch of different stuff out while doing primary primarily rescue, but looking at the articulation of medical modalities, treatment modalities, and what we had to be cautious of when we we're moving somebody vertically in a ve- or in a vehicle or in a combined space or structural collapse, things like that, that we found a bunch of the deficiencies that were out there in the junctional devices that that weren't looked at. But I'm going to hold off on that for, for a second to get into the CASVAC and let you and JJ kind of go through... Some of the experiences, J.J., from um, an 18 Delta's perspective to, you know, stuff that was being taught and and things like that with the schoolhouse, people that have to adhere to TC3 and some of the stuff that they had with the devices. J.J.
2: Yeah, so um, first of all, I'm super bummed to hear, and and I know that some of our uh, rescue folks, a certain guy comes to mind, will be really upset to find out that you did not change the name to AAJT to try to mimic some Star Trek items like the a, the at, at or the ATST. Um, oh my god. Oh my god. The super nerd in me just was super excited that you know Star Trek was getting its credit there. I think I got and, that
0: right, right? Andy oh, Schrader. And on, a- are you Wars talking team? Andy Schrader? Yeah. Yeah, AT is
1: Careful, does come after you. That's that's some prop fate
2: right there for a certain person that we know really well. Um but but, yeah, so that's my first, first uh, disappointing factor. Also, I wanted to kind of put a quick disclaimer out there. As a kid who found a way to destroy the indestructible combs um, uh, while waiting for his you know, yearly photo at school, um, it, yes, this thing is indestructible in that it's not going to get destroyed in any normal use. Not that we even do normal use, so even probably subnormal usage. But if your goal is to destroy this thing, I have faith that whoever you're at are out there listening, going, "Oh," he says, "unbreakable." I got this. You're right. You probably do, but you also are wasting your time. Um, and if you have that kind of money and time, like bro, throw me a bone. I need yeah. some new <laughs> bearings and a new pair of wheels for my longboard. So, like, uh, that wouldn't, that won't even cost you as much as it would to uh, to destroy this thing. So. Just don't do that. Um, Or do it, whatever, like that's your call. But just know that what we're saying is the same kind of concept as that comb is like you're gonna use that thing a lot more. Um, Also keep in mind like, yes, in some extreme scenarios, especially in my kind of line of work in my community, there is a possibility um, that you unfortunately will be using this device more than once, but it is not designed and it should not be part of your plan to, like, use this a second time, right? Like, you should be using it, and then hopefully your patient has been passed off and gets to what he needs, where she needs, and then that item is, is gone forever, and you're not, like, looking to use it. So um, a common mistake I see in training across the board, it, I'm guilty of it as well, um, more so in my younger days than, than now, um, but I have benefits of people with big budgets to give me equipment and things. But even there, there's times where we reuse things. Like in training, sure, reuse an item a couple of times. But also keep that in mind when you're judging and evaluating items, right? Like if a, if a you know soft tee or a cat tourniquet or like a couple of the other things that I use over and over again in training break, if it breaks because I've used it 8,000 iterations, I don't go complain to the company. It's not supposed to be necessarily put through that kind of pressure. So just keep that in mind. When when we're talking about this stuff, hopefully that makes sense. And if it doesn't, well, um, I'll just do some English as second language for you later on. (laughs) Hopefully, keep up. (laughs) But yeah, so, like, from an 18 Delta point of view, the AJT, first of all, like, I was just taking some notes while you were talking earlier, John, and I think it's insane. But in a good way, I guess maybe that 15 years has passed and we're actually back on the same discussions, arguments, debates, et cetera, because um, a heavy discussion currently in, in most of the, like, blogs and, and chat rooms, et cetera, that I'm involved in and I use all of my non-sleeping time on um, is, like, should we or should we not be putting a knee on the stomach for these kinds of, you know, massive bleed problems, et cetera? Um, I think at the end of the day, we've we've kind of come to a common sense that we should have been a long time ago, and the answer is yes, with a caveat of never say never always like if the guy's pelvis or the girl's pelvis is shattered like maybe don't jam your knee into it um if you don't know exactly where to put it maybe don't do that and definitely don't just like wwe into the guy when you do it i guess that shows my age that i know it's wwe now and w not wwf but i'll try to refrain from that kind of um you know tangent for now although i'm still kind of upset that they had to change their name that's kind of the other pieces i keep in mind here. It's just crazy that 15 years has passed, and um, the, the question is still relevant. The device, I think, is still relevant. I'm going to hear a lot of, well, John, what about Reboa? Yeah. And we'll talk about this back and forth, I'm sure. But, yeah, what about Reboa? Reboa's is an amazing change and, and innovation in the uh, the medical and pre-hospital world, um, especially in the pre-surgery and like emergency resuscitation type stuff. But, like, it has its place Um, and I don't like this argument but I hear this argument a lot um, that medics can't or shouldn't usually can't do um, Raboa. I'd like to say that I think quite a few medics and skill sets can the question is whether they should that's a different story and more specifically um, should they dedicate thought, training skill set and a couple of other, like, just cognitive factors to that particular, very specific skill set to do, because I agree it's, like I said, it's doable. It's just difficult um, and difficult to maintain a skill set. Yeah. So that's kind of where I look at this is a lot of people try to compare the AJT to the Raboa And I would like to say that it's comparison and it's the same kind of problem set. But the context is what you should really be thinking about in, in differences. Um, and the context usually is that I'm short on time. I'm in a constrained environment. Um, it's usually hostile at minimum. But you know, as everybody's heard to it say, it's gonna, it's usually you know VUCA T squared hmm. in environment. And that's not really the time that I want to be doing a Raboa. Um And I personally, unlike you, John, um, when you're doing flight medicine or, like, some of our other units out there that have a lot of really skilled medics and docs um, in helicopters, I have the constant opportunity to suddenly find myself in another problem set or a mask cow. I've yet to find any random kid trying to steal your spare tire or ask for chocolate in any of the helicopters that I've flown in. Maybe in the future, they're get, They'll get there. Um, some nice old man in Costco yesterday showed me some photos of a flying car, um, that he wants to purchase. So, Hey, you know, like maybe, <laughs> but, hey, you know, but not likely. So those are kind of some of the, the mindsets of it. And, and, you know, jump in whenever you want to or wherever yeah. you want. To. Uh, like that's kind of the, the look I look at it. Does that meet up with kind of
1: like what you felt it needed to do? Yeah, sure. Oh, no. Well, I mean, I think the the discussion uh, since 2007 has definitely evolved and there definitely are recurrent themes. You know, the overall uh, theme is if you have any way possible of not spilling those precious red blood cells on the ground where they cannot help you or the casualty do it. And that's sort of the common sense approach that I go back to interventions like knee in the mid-abdomen. All you're doing is off and off long enough to figure out what's going on. And if that buys you time and improves the possible survivability, then great. Uh, it, you, but so I I'll, 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 I'll do want to go back and I will give a little shout out in grace. I understand the um, issues that a lot of people have with the combat ready clamp, otherwise known as the CROC. It was the first to market. Uh, I'm, I'm actually very good friends with the inventor Uh Initially, I had a patent that sort of covered that technology, and I abandoned it. And I will tell you that he really came up with an elegant way to stabilize it more than I could. And okay. that is the original Lister tourniquet. And so when it came out, it was the only option. And it really did provide at least some form of a capability that we didn't have before. Um, it, 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 I think over time now, it, there there are some issues related to the tissue pressures that it applies it's why the um, ISR article uh, in uh, 2014 came out that was uh, uh, a little concerning because of the level of tissue pressures being applied by the device, and and, and it isn't used pr- as often as any of the others, I guess, right now. But but the guy who invented it is is a true American hero, a uh, soldier, soldier, uh, a uh, a guy that uh, I love to death and have a lot of respect for. Uh, But I do understand about the complaints of the the device itself.
2: I appreciate the the clarification there, because I'll be honest, like I think um, as a whole, although, you know, we do feel like there's some problems with it, most of us actually have the biggest beef with its application, which really doesn't have much to do with him. It's got more to do with the way that some committees um, and some different, like, kits that were purchased uh, for through the RV, for the RV, et cetera, and how that kind of came about and the disconnect from action to, to device, you know.
1: So that's fair, and I appreciate that. For, no, for well, that. I'll, I'll, I'll add on to that because, you know, it's interesting. If you look at requirements-driven development versus uh, a company coming up with a good idea and trying to put it in an end-user's hand, the Comet Ready clamp was developed through requirements-driven development by an end-user, and, and it's interesting that the way it was packaged and sold really wasn't the way it was carried by the end user uh, that uh, developed it. Um, and, and it feels so true to form that the process of bringing an idea to the market space so much sometimes is added on maybe because regulatory requirements, maybe because people think it's a good idea, Maybe people are trying to de-risk the type of interventions that we're doing, but when you look at junctional hemorrhage or, or truncal tourniquets, I mean, these are heroic interventions. Yeah. It's just like the concept of no extremity tourniquet needs to be behind a zipper, a, a snap, a button, or even Velcro. I mean, you got to be able to grab that and go because it's life-saving capability is based on how fast you put it on the, the patient. And I think the same way with the junctional tourniquet. So the faster they can be employed, absolutely, the better.
2: Yep, that's that's good. I like that.
1: All um, right. So about the Reboa and Aajt um, question, I it's very interesting because I I think that we had um, some early adaptation in some of the special units because of them putting their hands on it, seeing how it worked, and realizing the potential benefits or the potential upsides of it. And, uh, and and so we had some early sort of buy-in, not just in the U.S., but from some of our allied partners overseas. But, you know, the base uh, issue really was that these junctional uh, injuries were happening, and the tourniquet really just wasn't available uh, to many people. David Marcosi did a study with the— um, Uh, Central Command Joint Theater Trauma System uh, and looked at casualties during a period of time between January uh, 2013 and March 2014 on the casualties within the trauma system that had junctional hemorrhages. Uh, 178 casualties were identified that had junctional hemorrhage and 93% didn't even have the option of having a junctional tourniquet applied because they weren't out there and and what really hurt is that by that point there were three approved tourniquets and uh and, and they just weren't out in the field uh and actually during that period of time at the very beginning of that mine was one of the approved tourniquets the a uh JT or the AAT at that time when then we transitioned for the AAJT. Reboa is it, it's really neat. Okay, so when I started doing medicine, and I'm, I'm going to say, say my age here just a little bit, uh, I uh, graduated medical school in 2000. Okay, so I've been doing this stuff generally for about 21 years, and the idea of what Raboa brings to the table would was not even conceived. It wasn't even dreamed of.
2: Right. It's like,
1: it's it's so science. Science. Yeah, you,
2: That's why I don't like to hate on it too much because to me it's like my no,
1: the, the hate is more this rational concern. I will tell you as a doc, any new drug, medical device, technique, procedure, SOP, that's brought to the table always comes under scrutiny initially.
2: Yeah, and it should, right? I mean, yeah. And, and it's someone whose eyeballs bounce back and forth um, like a old-school pong game because of mefloquine. Like, I appreciate those.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well I'll go one further. Uh, when I was finishing out emergency medicine, uh, I was taught that tourniquets were the last resort. Yeah. Yep. A lot of medical providers were scared to be high. So was I in the first couple um, days of,
2: of Sakam back that's how old I am. Um, and then we we're catching up at the same time, but still. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, so I think Reboa um, it, it, and even before Reboa what we really sort of knew Reboa as Reboa and it had more of a broad uh, investigation by the military in 2013, the first combat life saved by the AAT at that time was the Brits putting it on an Afghan soldier in the Mert helicopter, and they were giving this guy everything. and And he was he had lost both his legs. Uh, it was an IED uh, blast. He had a lot of holes in his pelvis, a lot of holes in his upper abdomen too. And they were doing everything. Uh, Factor Seven. They were giving him uh, TXA. They were giving him blood. There were uh, physicians because the, the Brits actually field the most advanced medical intervention closest to the point of wounding of anybody in the world. And that's the MERT. And it's it's, it's really uh, pretty exceptional. Uh, and I'm not going to hate on the U.S. capabilities. I love yeah, what we but, can. But you're and, right. But MERT are they're an impressive it's, it's ridiculous oppressive. that they would fly that kind of resource out there. And I would just hate to think if one of those things went down because it, it would really hurt them a lot. But they, they put this on this guy, and I remember talking to the doctor who put it on the casualty. And he said, look, I understand the whole turning the faucet off. I understand why the bleeding stopped. This guy was dying with all of our interventions. And one of the things that caught his attention this is the MERT helicopter. The other thing that we really benefited from on that case was all the viral signs. Oh, my gosh. This guy literally from the MERT's arrival had— Every vital sign you would expect in a critical unit. So he had an entitled CO two that had just precipitously dropped, and which was why they were most concerned about him going ahead and expiring before they even made it back to the base to take him to the OR. And uh, and he said when the when they applied the tourniquet over the guy's mid abdomen and, and inflated it, within 30 seconds he had an entitled CO two that went from very low, like less than 12, which is Really not compatible with uh, an oxygen-carbon dioxide exchange that can sur- that life can survive on to a um, a uh, a CO two of sixty, and and that's perfectly normal. And he was a little dumbfounded. He's like, why did that happen? And so I mean, he's asking the question that is explained by it's the reboa effect. And and so I think when you so. This is what ultimately led the Institute for Surgical Research and the 59th Med Wing, both based out of San Antonio. The 59th Med Wing is a USAF uh, resource. And the Air Force researcher Jason Rall um, did, I think, the best study. Um, uh, Mike Dubrick, the uh, head over hemorrhage control at the ISR, was responsible for the other one. But they both were looking at equivalency of the AAJT application at the abdominal site to Zone 3 Reboa, and both of them, I mean, there were, there were uh, eight posters at the what's now called the Military Health System Research Symposium, uh, where military researchers and academia sort of gather together once a year to talk about requirements and the research that's being done. But they presented eight papers on the equivalency between the device and Zone Three Reboa. and we got calls from everybody—folks uh, from the ISR, folks from the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care—saying, "Hey, this is it. This is this is how we're going to um, use the AAJT. This is how we're going to get it back on the uh, uh, committee-approved uh, list uh, or recommended devices list." list. And it—it was—it uh, was really unique because the—the the thing with Reboa, and you alluded to this, JJ, uh, a little bit. It, it's. It really does require somebody that has a little savvy in the medical provider realm. Uh, they really need to understand anatomy well. I mean, so like there's some basic skills they've got to get just to be able to do it for the first time. And then, yeah, I mean, as an as a ER doctor that has quite a bit of experience practicing trauma resuscitative medication, I mean, medicine interventions, it's not easy to cannulate an artery in a, uh, in a depleted uh, patient where they're, uh, they've lost blood, maybe they're dehydrated, that artery is quite small. We usually utilize an ultrasound to find it. I can cannulate it, I gotta float a catheter up and inflate a balloon. It really requires a provider that has some advanced knowledge and, and some good practice, it requires the equipment, it, and, and, and it's, it's not very easy, it's very invasive. And, and the reason the ISR and 59th Medwing got excited was because they found not only that the device was equivalent, but if you look at the application uh, sort of prerequisites to apply it, the, the AAJT can be put on by a first responder. You know, I mean, it, you don't actually even have to have the actual anatomy view to follow the little pictogram. So where the other junctional devices come to point pressure the AAJT uses area pressure, and it's one of the reasons why members of the, uh, the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care, when the device was uh, reconsidered at one point, um, said this was sort of the no-brainer device, uh, the Air Force combat medic assessment that looked at all of the devices. Uh, that's one of the things that they went with because it, you, you actually didn't have to have specific anatomy knowledge to be able to apply it successfully. Um, so the the the, the so from the ROBOA standpoint um, the it, it doesn't just stop there it, it is equivalent the the 59th medwing found that the mean arterial pressure and cardiac output actually rose uh, more than the ROBOA intervention because we sort of cross clamp everything including the IVC uh, their data is is uh, very um, uh, compelling but then There's another uh, article that was produced in abstract form, printed in abstract form already, but will appear in the summer j again by 59th MedWing, that looks at somebody applying the device at the point of wounding and leaving it in place until it can be transitioned to Reboa. And it was very successful. So as a bridging mechanism, you can bring the benefits of Reboa all the way down to the point of wounding and, uh, and and prevent potentially prevent multiple episodes of hypotension. You can conserve the resuscitative fluids that you're using, uh, and, um, and and it provides somebody a better chance at a survivable outcome. Yeah.
2: yeah, I like and I like that idea of like bridging to bridge. You know, because like the revo is also a bridge to the next yeah. surgery, really. Um, so now we're just kind of building upon our bridge concept. And um, truly hitting what Sean and I like to talk about um, requisite diversity versus a redundancy system. Um, so that's, that's amazing to kind of think about that, that capability and that opportunity. And it, I think it also helps kind of contextualize the, the importance of the AAJT being more of a, for the most part, for a medic, you know, combat medic, maybe one a little bit more specialized, but not necessarily um, has to be. But either way, like, that that's that that realm, and then the Raboa kind of fits in more of this hosp, field hospital hospital um, scenario, almost, or at least um, a true transport on the way to That's a little more secure, so that's a good context maker, I think.
1: Well, and just to uh, jump in and get you and Sean sort of feedback on this aspect, you know, um, I mentioned that. A non-medical personnel, a first responder, um, uh, can actually put this on correctly, effectively, very quickly. Uh, I think I'd uh, offline mentioned to you guys about uh, Brian Gerard, uh, mm-hmm. one of former MARSOC, uh Navy corpsmen, that just a phenomenal medical provider. And after he left military service, continued to uh, stay in the mission, training folks going over. And he and I had spoken about uh, a little chalkboard experiment he did while he was training marine reservists, which none of which had any medical training. And they were doing pre-deployment training uh, and had uh, split them up into a couple of groups. For the first group, he gave a two-minute instruction on how it's used and gave it to them. And these non-medical marine reservists put it on accurately 100% of the time in under one minute. Uh, And then for the other group, he didn't give them any instruction at all. He just threw a package at him. It did have a package insert, the instructions for use that uh, that's in the package. And they were able to follow the basic pictograms. And they were able 100% to put it on accurately, effectively, uh, to stop the bleeding uh, in under two minutes. So I think just to emphasize on, it doesn't take a medical provider to put this one on. Uh, it opens up the range for how quickly you could do such an advanced intervention without having a medic do it. it, yeah. they,
0: I mean, it Gerard was it. able to finish the training without anybody stopping because the pain was too much, John?
1: <laughs> okay, we will get there. <laughs> <laughs> I brought you, you're jumping the script what? a little bit. Yeah,
0: well, the other part
1: of this is if you got an advanced intervention that you're <laughs> do it, and, and you all correct me if I'm wrong, but, but when I talk to guys – that are using this uh, in this and they're carrying it downrange. Uh, what I keep hearing from them is when we put this on somebody, it doesn't move. We can drag them, we can pull them, we can, and I know y'all both have quite a bit of expertise in rescue, confined space, high angle, out of vehicles, under crush environments, and hasty rescues, getting somebody off an X. Could you uh, talk me through a little bit of those? Because I, I've, I've been very uh, interested in the idea that if you can put an intervention on that you don't have to worry is going to fail when you start moving the patient. That's that's a, that's an extra sort of uh, feather in your cap and 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 a little peace of mind going downrange.
0: No, I, uh, I, I was going to say from the from the rescue side, um, I'll just uh, you know interject that uh, you know we're working with a group of people that. That use the AAJT uh, as far as their device goes. and Yet we had a whole bunch of various equipment out there um, just to see how those pieces articulated when we did rescue. And back in the day, there was this big, and actually it still continues today, with the advanced level of the medics and, and speaking, you know, when we can speak to, you know, soccer and medics and, and 18 deltas, but on the civilian side, we look at these, uh, like USAR medical specialists, these search and rescue um, uh, deployable assets and things like that during everything from hurricanes to you know, uh, the two deployable uh, FEMA assets that, that deploy out. And the medics that support them are, are incredibly trained, um, really well versed and the question came up a while ago is you know do we bring the ER to the patient or the patient to the ER and as we've said multiple times i think that that answer is context specific but it's also somewhere in the middle to where you have all these advanced techniques but is that it, 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 at the point of wounding in let's say uh, a collapsed building uh, is that where we want to do these things you know putting chest tubes in and putting surgical airways in and doing all this other shit and in the end you know people need to realize that for, for all those techniques that you'd like to do, it, it's going to increase your evacuation time, the time to extract them out of that threat, that, that collapsed building, that confined space, um, get them out of that building over into a vertical arena, get them out of uh, you know an up-armored or, or, or non-armored vehicle. It, having to maintain you know that airway, that chest tube, all the little tubes going in and out of people exponentially increases your time of evacuation. And if they don't need it right now, then you should probably wait until you at least get them into a little bit more open of a space um, to where it's not going to slow you down that much. That while you're in that collapsed building, you're still worried about a secondary collapse or anything like that. That to get them out of there before you start applying more advanced things. So you know potentially you know do enough that they hopefully don't die while you're evacuating them out or extracting them out of that that higher threat area. Because of that, we saw some interesting problems with treatment modalities that that people were using let's say, you know, in that that gray area of uh, care under fire and, and tactical field care, or direct threat and indirect threat, and, and how we had to change the way we packaged them to protect the medical intervention, if that makes any sense. And so we had a bunch of, of various gear out there, and it just so happens that somebody threw a, one of the other, it was, so when I say three devices, right, it will talk, you know, basically like the SAM, the JET, and the AHAT. We'll leave the crock out of the discussion, um, just because no one's really evaluating that in this type of environment. So it was interesting because they somebody used one of the other two devices, um, not the AHAT, and as soon as we Bent them at their legs to get them up and over a balcony out, kind of a hotel type of uh, environment to lower a casualty. As soon as we bent their their legs, because that's where those other two devices articulate, uh, at that crease there, it immediately broke. And we all just kind of looked at each other like, holy shit, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and then for the rest of the day, we just started looking at all the devices, those three devices – and measuring was there slippage, did it break? what was being compromised during rescue uh, on the vertical side, then we went in and did it within a vehicle and then we did it with movement within a confined space. And we had close to uh, like uh, well there's every device failed except for the AEGT because that's not where it articulates at a bending place. Uh, we will always bend those legs when we're moving them trying to get around corners in a confined space uh somebody that's sitting in a vehicle already we can't put the other devices down effectively and then even if you happen to be able to somehow be able to jam that device in in a sitting position of somebody in a vehicle that's entrapped by a dash or a steering wheel or whatever then once we extend them back out is where everything shifts so we had just enormous problems and basically i'll be honest with you this is this occurred right after uh, the initial CASVAC program came out. I think we need to talk about one other thing in here, too, is is the reluctance or why the AGT is not in the TC3 guidelines. And so what, what, what amazed me as I'm trying to think of the right word here, negligence, I think would be good,
2: <laughs>
0: is, is you... The, the the terminology TC3, uh, and I feel very comfortable saying this because I've talked to the heads of them uh, when we initially found this out, uh, so it's not like uh, we're talking behind any, anybody's want back because we've talked directly with them, is it amazes me that you have an, your name of, of potentially a committee put onto a large contract vehicle that is – uh, basically split between a lot of medical and a lot of rescue equipment, but at no time did you ever evaluate the application of your medical stuff in a rescue fucking situation. Well, well
2: so are you trying to say, Sean, that we're supposed to, like, that rescue, like, isn't, like, this in magical individual thing that happens
0: in between or, or outside of medical care and, like, no, point well, I, and I'll give it to you. I think a lot of times, obviously, we all know that there's a lot of unicorn QRFs where the unicorn can come in and shit and make all your medical stuff be fine during your, your – we're going to pretend like we're doing a rescue but We never evaluate rescue thing. We'll pretend yeah. like we're going to lower them. But as long as we got these things done on this checklist, um, then the, the unicorns will arrive and take them out and there won't be any problems. But uh, yeah, so when that evaluation occurs, it was hard for me to believe that they didn't know that the only recommended – Junctional devices that are in there in a contract that contains half of it being freaking rescue, that they never looked at what that interaction was, right? That it shows you when you take all variables out and you do something that's EBM, that EBM is your first step. From there, there's a shit ton of other fucking testing that you need to do to show the application and different environments and yet we hang our hat on ebm when the environment is never even a variable uh i believe in ebm right but that's step one if it doesn't pass ebm then throw the shit away but that is the most basic elementary freaking study you can do yet we hang our hats on it like it's the end all which doesn't mean absolute shit when you think about fucking context and environment so that, that i'll stop there on that one but but yeah
2: Environment-based
0: medicine. Yeah, EBM. That's that's. Uh, I thought it, no, I okay. thought it stood for environment, and that's why I liked it at first. But then I realized what it really was was an epistemological scale of nonsense. Yeah, yeah. But but so anyway. So back back on the thing is they never evaluated it. And what's interesting is the, unlike a lot of some groups out there that don't have to that, you know there's no rhyme or reason. they don't have to follow anything in TC3 that are very specialized units a lot of these other units can't purchase shit unless it's in those guidelines and the Kazvac yeah. program couldn't carry that? anything that wasn't in the guidelines so the only structural sure. devices that you are allowing people to Ooh, use yeah, are, the one, are the ones that we know don't work in fucking rescue Yeah. like I don't, even, I, can't, I don't even know what to say can I jump in? yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think, so
1: yeah, your, your EB, evidence-based medicine, and, and what's interesting is the the committee did say they used evidence-based medicine to evaluate our, our device, and, and I think for your listeners' uh, edification, uh, what you're referring to is, although the AAT was initially an approved device by the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care, in 2013, they released Change 13-3. And that effectively removed us out of a recommended device category uh, from the committee's perspective. And they cited a couple of evidence-based medicine articles. Uh, In fact, uh, evidently, it was looked at again internally in 2018, uh, and they used two articles. Now, uh, sort of being mindful of the scope, currently there are 63 articles in the bibliography about this device. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, it, it, so the, the two that they sort of focused in on um, uh, out of the 63 uh, have to do with preference study done by the ISR physicians uh, in um, 2014. And Dr. Caribaldi, who is a, a well-known researcher in the Institute for Surgical Research that did a two-hour study of the device in 2016, the 13-3 change was based on the AAT, and, uh, and, and they had raised some issues such as, at that time, the AAT didn't have junctional indications. And so it really wasn't fitting into their category of, of looking at junctional devices. Uh, they also uh, looked at the uh, recommended application time uh, because over the abdomen, we recommended only one hour. And the other junctional devices being put over the groin were four hours. Well, there's a huge difference there. Uh, and then there was a report that wasn't very, uh, well, in the 13-3 change, nothing is specifically mentioned, but they they talked about reliability issues with the early AAT. And, JJ, I, I don't know if this is having to do with your sort of whippets uh, uh, analogy or not, if they were having air leaks, because they never reached out to us uh, yeah. to discuss these, um, these issues. I will say, though, that before 13-3 was published, I reached out to uh, a couple of the folks at the ISR that were responsible for that change uh, it, it, on the committee that were responsible for that change. In fact, when it was published in the JSOM, I spoke to the two lead authors on that paper. And I, I what was what, had, what was sort of odd to me was they were making this assumption or, or this change based on the first device called the AAT. We had not sold that for almost six months. Hmm. We already had a new approval from the... FDA, we had a new 510K approval that had changed the name and the indications. Uh, The one hour stayed just for the abdomen, but all of our junctional sites were four hours. I had research at the junctional sites. We even by that, by 13 3, uh, when it was published, we already had case reports of lives saved in upper and lower junctional hemorrhage. So I reached out to them. I, I offered the 510-K application approval letter from the from the FDA. I offered the research. I sent them a brand-new device um, and, uh, and offered to even speak to the committee if it would be helpful. And I was just simply told, well, we sort of feel like we've got the junctional hemorrhage issue dealt with with these other devices, and so we're, we're, we're just going to publish this change as is. And the downside for me, I'm a one man show. I always have been. I, it's not. It's it, my company's growing a little bit right now. But um, if I had not made an effort, then no one would. Uh, I don't have anybody lobbying. Um, and and fortunately, one of the naysayers on the committee um, actually had a financial interest in one of my competitors, and he was voting on the change. Well, let's. I, I will tell you that I, I think unfortunately. That bleeds into a lot of this uh, arena uh, because it's the guys that are focused on these problems that's, that usually come up with the answers, or a lot of the times come up with the answers. Um, well, but I think they, should, they should financially, you know, benefit from. Yeah, you need, to, you need to be, I be able to. Totally agree, but
2: or gray? Gray is the right answer.
1: Well, no, it's 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 worse than gray. I mean, you, you have to define all financial disclosures and then then recuse yourself of making yeah. the. Det- in that area, if you have a financial interest to benefit, so um, so we did that, and, and 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 even though now there really is a tendency, and, and actually the the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care and the Joint Trauma System is under new leadership, and I will tell you that as a doctor, an Army doctor, uh, a doctor that's worked in the special operations community for 25 years, I am very very supportive of the current leadership, and they okay. are. And yeah. attempt to remove uh, product names out of doctrine because yep. that's the only way doctrine really needs to be done now, what do we need to do and let us make the decision on whether or not uh, a individual product meets that capability so um, they're making an effort but but they sort of have to own what they've done and, 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 and what I'm referring to organization's done yeah, I yeah. well there are four devices they only picked one loser and that was my initial device and then, and then unfortunately that sort of followed on and and, uh, and and it's associated with Compression Works, the name of my company that makes the AAJT. Now, and correct.
2: Sorry to interrupt, but correct me if I'm wrong, John. But at that time, if I remember correctly, because dates and time are at my forte, uh, you had not been selling the AAT for quite a bit of time yeah. when it was being evaluated, either. Right? Like it's in that yeah. kind of. The-
1: when they started their evaluation of the junctional tourniquets, they were trying to amend the junctional hemorrhage section. There, the AAT was out in the field. Uh, in fact, one of the uh, authors had taken one, and and I think you mentioned before that if you really want to break something, you can. And he, he took it into the uh, uh, the 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 uh, guy who was is really the stalwart of uh, junk, uh, of tourniquet research in the military. John Craig, he's a phenomenal guy, very smart guy. And he literally broke it in front of him. And 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 my recollection of what John shared with me was sort of, why did you do that? He said, well, because I could break it. Um, but So there were a few AATs in the environment. We had stopped, you're absolutely right, we had stopped marketing it and, sh- and selling it almost six months before Change 13 Dash 3 was uh, published so yeah there there was quite a bit of time there
2: that makes sense and, yeah keep to, going
1: well yeah so um, so the, the there we usually get questions about three articles out of the sixty three that have uh, been put out or have something to do with our device because um, only three of them have somewhat negative connotations or have some issue that was reported that really needs to be looked into or commented on. And uh, and, and that being said, the, the first was this preference study. And I will tell you that there are a lot of different ways of doing preference studies. And I'm, I'm not a really big fan of preferences. I'm, I'm interested in outcomes. I, I truly am. I, I, I don't care what somebody thinks about a certain technique, product, device. I'm interested in does it work is it going to help me save somebody's life? That's really all I'm interested in. But the preference study got a lot of play in 2014. The physician researchers, so not medics, the physician researchers at the Institute for Surgical Research decided to apply all of the junctional devices that were on the market at that time. And therefore, uh, there's still four, technically. And they applied the other three at junctional locations. And although... Um, we are over a year selling the AAJT. They apply the AAJT at only the abdominal location. And so you're not really comparing apples to apples. Okay, so you're putting the, abdominal ap- uh, ap- uh, the device over the abdomen. And I do this on a regular basis when I'm training guys. Uh, I can uh, inflate it to the point that it's occluded my aorta, and I have no blood flow through my legs. My legs start going a little tingly, but I do it to show people I can put it on, it's not unbearable, and I can breathe and talk while, I'm, uh, while I have it applied. But during the preference study, they actually looked at device failure points and included if the physician researcher said it hurt too much and wanted to stop the application. So they counted the decision of cessation of application due to pain, they counted that as a device failure. Now, there, there was a, uh, a rebuttal sort of editorial uh, published in the Journal of Special Operation Medicines, the very next issue, um, and it, that, that sort of went into this, this really skews the numbers because the numbers on that article really look bad. Uh, the, uh, the other uh, sort of comment, it was, was a very generic comment that said some respiratory impediment uh, that uh, uh, was incurred by some of the participants. Now, that was a subjective report. There was no objective data. You know, are you talking about pink inspiratory pressure? Well, no, because none of them were ventilated. Are you talking about your uh, ability to do a uh, or, or use it in spirometer and see how how much you could blow? That They didn't do any of those things. And th- there was a study that was commissioned by the military, performed at Fort Gordon on the device that was a hemicorporectomy model, and for uh, for those that aren't familiar with that term, uh, the, the military was looking at people who literally are lose waist down, okay, so horrible, horrific injury. You, you're, you have lost your pelvis, your legs, everything below. Could this device save you? And, and actually, there was 100% survival when the device was applied within three minutes of the wounding. So the, there were a couple of uh, outtakes from that research project. One of them was looking on uh, at peak inspiratory pressure. So all of your advanced uh, medical personnel, paramedics level and above, uh, advanced technical practitioners, all of your soccer, uh medics will understand that because they have to manage ventilated patients. So peak inspiratory pressure as an ER doctor I have to worry that if it grows too high, we can develop a, a phenomenon called autopeep, and I can actually create a pneumothorax when one did not exist before I tried to help them. It also is a great marker for whether or not I'm affecting uh, pressure onto the diaphragm that is reducing the ability for the lungs to be ventilated. So. Uh, this hemicorporectomy study looked at a lot of little data points, and one of them was peak, uh, peak inspiratory pressure. And it was a minimal effect on peak inspiratory pressure. It did not affect the ability to ventilate an animal in the study or a person in real life. And, and those values are very easily transferable to, to uh, the understanding of how the device would work on a human. What, what's most interesting about that preference study is it was presented at a, a military uh, conference um, in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, that year, and an hour later, a similar preference study, and again, I've already told you my disclaimer is I'm not really for preference studies, but if I'm interested in what somebody thinks about an item, a device, whether it's mine or not, I'm much more interested in the end-user's preference than a physician who will never actually apply it. So the, the other one that was presented about an hour later was done by the Air Force, Air Force combat medics. And they took all four devices and they rated them in seven areas. And we had the highest preference uh, of the Air Force uh, combat medics of all the devices. And, and so if you put it in the hand of an end user, so if, if a physician is tapping out because it's too painful and that's counted as a device failure, I'll be honest with you guys, and you could uh, correct me if if your experience is different than mine. I have never asked a patient or a casualty if the intervention I'm doing to save their life hurts them. And if it does, I'll stop and let them go.
2: Well, not only do I not ask them, first of all, I'm going to have them on some medications because they're probably hurt pretty bad. Um, Plus, a lot of people in my line of work, like I know guys that have jumped into, you know, when they're rangers and and take care of some um, pretend issues at like a airport or other airfield type of situation they've broken and had compound fractures and they decided to like basically duct tape it back together yeah. and walk to the main point so first of all they can handle the pain second of all i'm pretty sure pretty much everything i do hurts like even just getting sick <laughs> by comfortable um Turner can definitely hurt like a motherfucker i imagine a traction splint never had it needed to be done but imagine that's not super you know exciting either so yeah, the pain of the intervention has never been a question. They've been like, hey, you think this hurts? Maybe I shouldn't do it. Um, so maybe once again, just like I shouldn't probably be evaluating how to put a tricuspid bag- valve back in or, you know, <laughs> some other things, I also don't think that it, it's fully translatable for doctors to completely evaluate combat medical devices. I think they need to be there. Um, They're smarter than I am. They they at least have more education and a broader spectrum of of knowledge. But that shouldn't be the only and certainly not the driving force.
1: Um, Well, I would say that if, as a doc, uh, JJ, if I'm going to support you, I'm going to answer your questions, okay? And generally, my my special operation medics would come to me and just say, tell me what this is doing on the inside. All right, I, I just want you to tell me If what I'm doing, because this company said X device is good for this, am I hurting somebody? Uh, Is there evidence that says I'm either hurting them or not hurting them? But I understand the idea of helping wade through the evidence-based medicine uh, and um, and just getting you some information because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's my medics. Uh, Decision. Okay, it's his patient. It's it's his um, intervention, and it's his sort of gestalt approach to that patient that will either make or break or save or or lose that day. And uh, the idea of preferences, I think, really have very little utility. And I'm I was thrilled with the Air Force Combat Medics preference of the device, but I still think that there's a little there's a lack of utility in preferences. So the the whole thing with preferences, I think you're completely right. And and to be honest with you, to sort of put it in a simpler uh, frame of reference, uh, I think some people take offense to this, but they just need – I, as a doctor, need to stay in my lane. Uh, I have been in an end-user role in the past. I have not in a long time. I've been a doc. Um, Some of the things that I did after I left the Army uh, had me doing a a lot of end-user care. Uh, And so I I feel comfortable talking about those kind of things, my my personal experiences. I would hazard to say that you had more personal hands-on experiences than I have, and and I have no issues with that. But I think the idea of entrusting an entire paper to the preferences of physicians who will never in actuality place this device, and then then the, the sort of fallacy of counting a subjective choice as an objective failure of the capability of a device is just, it borderlines on idiocy to me. So, so that's one of the, the studies, uh, one of the three that we get questions about. Uh, what about the preference study, the device failures that the ISR found? Well, they actually weren't device failures. And It's fairly easy to pull up that article and show uh, where the methods indicate that the subjective cessation by the um researcher was counted as an objective failure and, and most people make that connection pretty clearly
0: i gotta yeah. i gotta just chime in real quick man so i've been keeping my mouth shut and i was oh, glad true. to see yeah i know man i'm biting it my tongue is actually bleeding so you know because you had a doctor won't repeat names or anything like that but technically bitch out a tap out bitch out whatever um uh, of that, you know what's interesting about that is the context in which it is. I, I, I guarantee, if you would have given him the injuries in which would have required that to be placed, that he he probably wouldn't have noticed that pain of, of EGT, sure. that yeah. into, uh, intolerable pain. That oh my god! Uh, I, I actually I just find it completely comical, just humorous because I've had that thing on so many damn times, and and you know to to get a human person on it versus looking for movement if we have it on a mannequin from a study, but seeing if we notice anything different to quantify that the, the, everything below the point of application is without a pulse. I've had that on a lot. And um, and what's interesting is I, I want to say there's we should probably put out this study of like a bunch of Girl Scouts that did a study. And none of them complained <laughs> about it either, which was cool, too. So so that they could do a preference study with the Girl Scouts um, uh, or whatever it is before the Girl Scouts where they, they put that on and had no issues with it. But he did. I, I just find that 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 study just so comical that you almost read it as a joke. Yeah. Like you're going to you're going to put this out there. And the fact that they put the fact that. It was painful I have to stop oh God help me as a failure point i I really don't know what to say
2: well, well while reporting out like comical um, existences and and kind of pointing fingers a little bit um, I just want to throw out there that I also find it interesting that the other kind of reason that most people that I talk to kind of blow off the A, that that aren't you know, RABOA compatible, right? Because there's certain units and, and jobs that that's a little bit more applicable to. Um, they, they like to kind of, they won't completely say it because I don't think they want to hear them say the, the whole thing out loud but they basically allude to that this problem is solved in that there are, I love saying this, um, a lot of uh, ways to innovate or to improvise uh, the junctional tourniquet, um, and there's even studies out there, and a couple of JSON articles and such. Um, but most of those people that, that will talk about evidence-based medicine and kind of roll their eyes when fire-based medicine are the same ones who are like, "But John, it's kind of solved in the, this uh, improvised, oh, impro- wait, what's the word? Are you- yeah, improvised um, tourniquet." And the other ones that are like, you know, I hear a lot like never plan to improvise. So if you're planning to improvise by planning, is that like a double negative? Is that what happened there? I, you know, I'm kind of confused. Um,
1: John, I'll I'll jump in. I guess I think that uh, I think everybody at the upper uh, spectrum of their skill set really needs to be able to think on their feet and try to be able to replicate things if they don't have them in hand. Yeah. And maybe they... The like, I think that's really... That's no, my... no. I, I know you're not disagreeing with that no. at all. And I'm just... I'm
2: adding some extra words there. And maybe that... Because they, words really matter to these people, um, even though they use them wrong or just can't figure out if it's the AAT or the AT that they're testing. But the words... <laughs> not, um, so instead of improvised maybe we just call it reverse engineering and now it sounds smart and it's basically <laughs> what you're talking about right john
1: yeah so i i think that um you know it, it for a field of study such as ours where evidence-based medicine like it or love it like it or hate it um uh is leaned on uh probably too much i mean that's a personal opinion of mine but Um, I I think it's not, it's not that evidence-based medicine is leaned on too much. I think it's, it's leaned on without understanding the contextual limitations of the evidence. So um, when somebody says this can do that, then, but it's, it's in a, what we would call an in vitro environment. Okay. It's in the lab. And so it doesn't have any of the stresses in which I'm actually going to do that, Mm -hmm. then that's the limitation. That's a very simplistic view, in my opinion. But that's sort of my limitation on evidence-based medicine. But we, we still rely on it. And, and so the, the problem with improvised measures isn't that they can't work. The problem is there's no way to do evidence-based medicine evaluations of them. Right. So, you, you can do an equivalency study on animals or a profuse cadaver or, uh, or a simulation model, and, and that's all great. But when all of the research is based on a device and its application in combat and it's been used on humans and and then you, you, that's one of those things, you can put that in the bank. You can't necessarily put the improvised method in the bank. Now, you don't want to just sit and say, oh, well, I don't have an AAJT, so I'm going to let this person bleed out and die. No, you do everything. All my medics yep. would. I don't know a single soul that wouldn't. But I I agree with you, JJ. I think that the idea of saying, well, we we don't have to have this conversation anymore. We don't need to look at whether or not this advice needs to be in the inventory anymore because I have the potential of improvising its end effects is just crazy. There's a reason why, you know, I'm sure when guys come through your schoolhouse, there's a reason why you tell them don't plan to improvise. You know, I mean, if you're going to be pre planning for deployment, you're gonna be packaging together the things that would allow you to mitigate the biggest risks you're gonna encounter. Yeah. And, and, and and thank God we live in a country that's gonna enable my special operations medical providers to pay for almost any intervention they wanna take down range. I mean, literally. I mean, we, we, they are not gonna say, ah, oh, no, sorry, that was that too expensive. I mean, there are definitely budget requir- uh, restrictions, I get that. But we can bring stuff with us that's going to help, and, and that's sort of how that falls into. To just simply say, I know that one right over there really works, and in fact a lot of people say it works every time, but I think I can make that with a coffee cup and a belt, is, is really pushing the boundaries of chance, and, yeah. and and really sort of locking you into a pathway of fate that you, you have less control over than you might think.
2: Absolutely, and I agree. and. And as a guy who's who's had to improvise and innovate quite a bit, or reverse engineer for you for you uh, EBM folks out there, um, you know, like, I, I've had do it quite a few times. I never want to, right? Like, now I do train and practice it at home, because, like, just like anything else, I feel like I should have done it at least once or twice before I go yeah. into combat, you know? And, and Sean's heard me kind of go on this spiel before about, like, just... Different things like I don't know anyone in my community um, personally, and I don't even know anyone who knows someone else personally who's had to use their handgun or their secondary firearm in um, in a CQU event. But none of us have even like fathomed not carrying it, um, <laughs> right? And I've never had to do like a, a one-armed magazine uh, reload in combat either. But I still practice it. Occasionally at the range um, for that event that I have to do it. So, right. for those that say, like, don't do it in training either, I think that's kind of um, dangerous and, and silly. Um, but that doesn't mean you do it just to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm with you. It also funny because, like, if the problem can be solved with, like you said, with, you know, just something different than, like, what your item is or a item that's out there, uh, well, then we probably wouldn't even have commercial Turner kits because I yep. was taught, you know, in what we refer to as six and rag stage, um, how to use a cravat and a doppel rod. And to be honest, um, in my early days, because I um, come from Fifth Group who are amazing um, if you hear me talk about them, but we are incredibly cheap and poor most of the time compared mm-hmm. to the other guys. So we didn't have the money for a lot of these different items, and, and plus my you know Bravos were busy buying the 18th um, holster for some random <coughs> people or something. Um, they wanted so i can get money allocated to me so i was carrying around doll rods early in the game too um because i couldn't afford all the trinkets. i had some you know commercial trinkets, but not enough um so if that problem was solved then like we wouldn't even be there but those same people are very very you know specific about making sure that no one uses their belt um or anything else and again i'm not saying you should use a belt in fact that's usually most leather belts are a terrible plan you've got a lot of other items on your body that could be work better if you had to improvise a tourniquet but again it should be have to not i am retarded and bring them same thing with this kind of device like this is not a situation that's going well right when you you need a roboa an AJT, a junctional tourniquet of any sort improvised or other things have not gone anywhere near to what you planned Um, and if you did go the way you planned um you're probably not saving the guy because clearly you, your plan was to make sure they died. It's nobody's planning on this guy getting shot in the junctional area. Um, so you know, it just those are the things I think you have to keep in mind, or our audience needs to keep in mind when we are looking at this problem. And it's just it's interesting to me, frustrating kind of manner that that it's been kind of blown off um, because of that. And I will I will fully admit um, both because of my experience with what we joke about the the whippet effect but also just because of hubris i think to be honest i was for a long time also guilty of not really feeling like i needed to worry about um that kind of problem set so i I was like well i've got my um pelvic binder or some kind of pelvic stabilization device and i can probably put something in here and do it or i could probably ligate it um which i practiced some here and there in ltt but not in real environments and i kind of somehow told myself i was good to go so when i make these jokes keep in mind i'm also making fun of young younger john and uh-huh. you know so it 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 comes from reality
1: is my point and experience no i and i appreciate that well i uh, sort of get back to the the things that we sometimes yeah. hear so that, that the preference study was one of the first things that would pop because people would say well we heard that the device didn't work and it it was all based on that one study and there are a number of studies international uh, none of which am I the researcher in uh, that evaluated the uh, device on humans both for safety and efficacy both in the US and abroad uh, that have found the device to be very effective in each of its application sites Um, The second sort of study that we get a lot of questions about is the 2016 Carabaldi study. And evidently when the Committee on Tactical Combat Casual Care uh, looked at the device again in 2018, they listed concerns over ischemia, distal ischemia at the site of application based on the published study by Carabaldi. And and even though he did it in 2016, there was a little bit of delay in it actually being published. He put it on the abdominal site for two hours and the protocol showed that, uh, or at least what he published, was uh, what he reported as life-threatening hyperkalemia and metabolic acidosis when the device was removed two hours later. And, and I will caveat this by saying, we've never had a two-hour indication on the abdomen. And Carabaldi himself said he found no issues with the one hour that we recommend the device being placed on at the abdomen. but. He's not the only two hour study. Uh, the uh, 59th MedWing in San Antonio did a two hour study that was actually presented at the same time in the same session at the military conference in which uh, Bajan Kiravati presented his data. And then the, uh, some Swedish researchers also did a two hour study on the device. And I like sharing this. This is, this is from the 59th MedWing study jason rawl uh was the lead uh, um, uh, primary investigator and he this is what he said this was um uh, related to the metabolic effects and the histologic histiologic assessment because we've also heard like oh you'll kill bowel uh by applying it because it's a lot of pressure over the bowel this was a uh, evaluation of the aajt after two hours of application and they did resuscitate the animals i'll get into that in just a minute but Um, He said, from a metabolic effect standpoint, the lactic levels saw a significant difference among groups. In both uh, groups that they studied, and they were actually looking at what happened if you put the AJT on somebody that didn't need it, non-hemorrhage groups, and the device on patients that really did need it. They had a life-threatening hemorrhage. Uh, It said that on both groups, the lactate rose consistently, peaking at 45 minutes into the observation period lactic levels were not statistically significant with respect to presence or absence of AAJT because they also did an arm of controls without the application of the device and then one with the application of device. Similar results were observed with base excess and pH. So they looked at lactic acid, base excess, and pH. And going back to the 2007, uh, sorry, the 2008 study on animals, lactic acid, potassium, were also looked at and didn't find any significant uh, variations. The Swedes didn't either. Under the histiologic assessment, after two hours of application, histiologic, this is looking at bowel, both macro, so just with the visual eye, and micro, under a microscope. Histiologic analysis, of hematoxylin and eosin-stained pulmonary and bowel tissue did not demonstrate any evidence of necrosis. Similarly, no differences were observed among groups with respect to edema or even inflammation. So that's up to two hours. So the um, Bajan's study, the Carabaldi study, also uh, said something that caught a lot of people's attention. When he removed it at two hours, he said CPR was required. And that really raised a lot of eyebrows because neither the 59th Med Wing or the Swedes had the same results. And it turned out that you know, they had created, the model creates a fatal hemorrhage and then application of the device, they left it on for two hours. Well, his protocol, when you took the device off, had no other interventions. So if they have a fatal hemorrhage before you put the device on, when you take the device off, they still have a fatal hemorrhage. And ultimately, they all required CPR. And he found that as a negative outcome. Well, it turns out, with all the other protocols that we do on, on hemorrhage control or, or when we're looking at damage control, resuscitative measures, so you're taking someone through the process of treating them or treating the animal like we would a human, and you just continue resuscitating the patient, giving them blood, taking them to surgery, trying to correct the, the, the problem at hand none of the animals studied at two hours in either the 59th Medwing study or the Swedish study required CPR at all. <laughs> so that that's, that's the sort of the second study. The last study we get questions on, I don't want to move ahead too fast if you have any questions on that, but the last study that we have uh, that we usually get questions on has to do with breakages. And there's this very, um, uh, I think I mentioned to you sort of a generic statement in the tw- the thirteen three change that said reliability issues, and I mentioned to you possibly the, um, the 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 inflation system having an issue. It's just not defined. But uh, in 2016, the Israelis repeated the 2014 preference study. This time, with the Israelis, it was sort of a mix of uh, physicians and medics, but. Uh, And interestingly, none of them tapped out. So the device performed quite well. Well, and I have no problem in saying that the Israeli researchers were tougher than the American researchers. At least that's (laughs) sort of subjectively what it looked like. Um, But what they did notice is after a number of applications, they had some devices that broke. And that raised a concern. Oh, my gosh. Well, this thing must not be reliable if it's breaking. So here's the backstory, story, and, and there was an editorial published in the Journal of Special Operation Medicine in the um, issue that followed their findings being published that addresses all of this in, in, in great detail. I actually offered brand new devices to the Israeli researchers. I met them. They told me that they were going to do the study, and, and they said, no, it won't be necessary. I said, I really don't mind. I, it, it's, it's free. I'm not going to charge you for them. Let me give you some, some new devices. And they said, not at all. The Institute for Surgical Research has provided us the devices they have been researching for several years now. And they've said, and this is the quote, these devices were inflated hundreds of times and they continue to last. So we will just use them. And so, it, it, very interestingly, I talked to the the uh, physician researcher that provided them the devices, who estimated the uses at over a hundred each uh, by the time they had handed them over to the Israelis. But the device has always been marketed as a single-use device. And JJ, you got into this just briefly about you know could you use it again? And and one of our special operation units in a mascal situation does have a protocol for using it on U.S. troops, okay, so we're not worried about uh, uh, cross contamination and it's external, where you can basically go and temporize uh, bleeding long enough to see if you can address the wounds, and if you can, you can take the device off and go to the next, you know, patient, that type of thing, but the reason it's a single-use device, most of it is there's no real good way to decontaminate it if it gets bloody, okay, you just too many seams, um, so we've always said it's a single-use device, uh, and so, the, uh, so we did make one labeling change. We put the international symbol for single-use, which is a circle with a two and a line through it. Basically, it's single-use only. We put a big label saying single-use only because we've never had breakages from the first use or single use in the way the Israelis uh, experienced them. So, but these things will, and you've probably heard them, JJ, they, they filter out through our community. Here, somebody say, oh, no, I wouldn't trust that one because that one kills bowel. That one has problems. That one, you have to do CPR when you take it off to somebody. It's dangerous. And then you, you, you in doing that, and it's just a word of mouth sort of rumor type uh, propagation, but you're taking away a capability that truly can save lives.
2: Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And, and there's other items out there that I feel like have been in the same boat. Um, I'll, I'll just mention one. I, um, and again, as everyone knows, um, I'm too broke to anybody even think that I get paid by any of these corporations. So just keep that in mind. Uh, the SWAT tourniquet um, or the SWAT-T is a prime example. I think the SWAT-T, as a compression bandage, which is what it's designed to do, it's a naming issue, I think, it is a phenomenal item. But for a very long time, and I don't, I'm not sure because I haven't tried to buy it in a while through pur- our proper funds, I just buy them on my own. But for a long time, I wasn't allowed to purchase them because they had failed a test as as being a tourniquet. And there were some anecdotal events, again, kind of comical, that, that we were blaming you know, anecdotal, anecdotal events, but that's a whole other tirade. Um, but bottom line is, because of that, of some types of areas where it was failing as a tourniquet and again it's not a tourniquet, we, you couldn't purchase it. So there's a couple of and and probably a lot more devices that I don't know about that are hindered um not only the company but me as the end user is hindered from receiving it even though I want it because of this like mislabel or this misrepresentation in the studies. Um and that's it's just unfortunate, I guess is my point. And kind of frustrating.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, actually, um, and I'm sure most of your listeners know about the SWAT-T, I agree. I love that thing because I can use it in so many different ways, even non-medical ways. I mean, it's basically a piece of inner tube that's very yeah. stretchy and it's long, and you can use it to tie down anything. Exactly. You can use it to... By just bind legs together, you know, when I don't want somebody moving around, you know, or it, it, you're absolutely right. I think some things will get caught in uh, in the evaluation process. And for instance, the the SWAT T did not fail in upper extremity tourniquet evaluation. It did fail in lower extremity tourniquet evaluation. And I I, I think some of that is. The way it was applied, and, and I do think there's some limitation in the ultimate amount of force that you can apply in uh, with that device. But it is wide enough that the cone of force extending down into the tissue does uh, seem to be fairly effective at upper um, extremity hemorrhage as a tourniquet. But yeah, it never met the military's approval list because we need one that does both. Right? We got to get. We have to do upper and lower. But it is very inexpensive. And so having any piece of kit that's real small, inexpensive, that can be used multiple ways. You know, I think that uh, the, the, the and, and again, you guys have more interaction with the end users at this point than I do. And the special operators that we talk to that use the AAJT as, uh, will tell us that, hey, man, I, look, I love the fact that I can treat junctional hemorrhage and I truly don't have to worry about it. I love the fact that I can treat pelvic bleeding uh and stabilize pelvic fractures with it because it is a, a an approved pelvic binder as well just like the the sand binder which for a long time was one of the reasons why um uh, people felt that the sam was sort of the fix-all solution because hey i'm already carried it for pelvic binding and now i can treat junctional hemorrhage but um there are all these different sort of utilities that can be built in a device at any i can carry one thing that can do multiple things it's it's uh, it's an increase in the economy of, of force and economy of use that I'm applying to my problem set. Absolutely.
0: All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna chime in real quick. One has to do with the studies. So with that I think that majority of the studies that people hang their hat on, right, are linear studies because they uh, meet the Gaussian framework, right? So you decrease all but one variable. Uh, You do not have an interdependence of variables because you have one variable. Uh, Everything in real life outside of a laboratory is nonlinear, right? So I think that, you know, a lot of people think I'm extremely negative evidence-based medicine, which I'm not. But I also realize in the spectrum of research, evidence-based medicine is the most elementary. It is the most foundational, the most basic level to the point where if you don't pass that true evidence-based medicine stopgate, then you don't need yep. to really go further, right? Yep. Um, yet there's that's the first one of a shit ton, depending on where you're going, how you're utilizing it, what's the environmentals, what's the context of your mission set. It all also play a role in it once you start bringing these other variables in it. But once you bring more variables into it, that's where uncertainty lies. And you don't know exactly how it's going to perform, how it's going to work, right? Even on evidence-based medicine, if you look at the n- main Place where evidence based true evidence based medicine fails when you look at um, you know the the Center for Evidence Based Medicine in Oxford and this and that you look at where those problems come. It's a lot of times in older patients with comorbidities. It's because you have two different systems, and it's very difficult to see how those two things are going to behave. What that interconnectedness has as an outcome. So. Realize that you know a lot of these studies are it should be taken in the context in which the study is done, which is in a lab. Um, there's no real world factors to that, right? Um, we can see that time and time again in TC3 with issues that had gone. I can't remember offhand, uh, just because my Adderall hasn't completely kicked in yet. Uh, <laughs> the antibiotic that was going on in between the Afghanistan and Iraq period, um, uh, yeah. that was one of okay. them, right? But then all of a sudden they had to pull it really quick because uh, they yeah. never knew it didn't constitute in higher temperatures in Iraq. And it's like, oh god, new, new one, let's get a new one. Well, it, it was on. The guidelines because it was only ever evaluated in a lab, man, right in an evidence-based research type of uh, format. So we we see failures that are like, how could this fail when it's on an, when it's evidence-based? Well, we don't realize what evidence is when we talk evidence-based medicine until you dig into it and realize what it what it really is meeting a Gaussian curve. So, you know, most of the things that we deal with are going to be on an inverse or power law, which is the nonlinear kind of equivalent when when you start adapting in multiple variables. So, the example I would give is if you look everything in a lab, right? That's a closed or isolated system, typically a closed system. But when you take physics for example and you look at like really linear, linear Newtonian type physics versus your nonlinear phenomena, um, which occurs in real life, it, it, it's, it's, it's night and day. So just look at open system versus closed system entropy. Right? Everybody bases their opinion of entropy and tries to write shit in real-world application using traditional closed system entropy, which is what we all learn, which is like, hey, once entropy expands, and I hate using the word order, disordered, and shit because I, I think it brings about a, a, a different picture than what entropy truly is. When when you especially when you look at the second law of thermodynamics, but as as entropy goes out, right, you start losing that potential energy that you have, uh, and it becomes more displaced or, or more diluted out. You can't bring it back in, which is only true. in what we learned in college, right, high uh, school and college, is that's closed system entropy. When you get into open system entropy, you can you can get. Reverse entropy You can't get that back. Uh, you just have to add entropy somewhere else in the system because now we're dealing with a freaking system with multiple variables, which oddly enough is, is real life. So just the difference between the, the parameters or performance parameters of entropy when we look at it in open system, real world, versus closed system in a lab, it's night and freaking day. So that, that's problematic. And, and I would also tell people if you want to get down a rabbit hole of anger and frustration, then really start researching what statistics is and how statistics is utilized. Uh, There's some great books out there on how to lie with stats, uh, with statistics, Um, all the different ways in which statistics can be manipulated and bastardized to basically put bias completely into it, even how it's done within research. And the problem is this, is you've got some phenomenal people out there doing research that are not good at statistics, right? you got some phenomenal people at statistics that fuck that up that aren't good at research. You know, I, I think when you when you start researching just, just basic overarching performance parameters of research and statistics and then you go back and read those studies that are quoted, have been quoted for decades, right? And you read those again, you could very well vomit in your mouth, unfortunately not spit it out, swallow it, it then burns the lining of your esophagus and you suffer for for days and it'll always remind you of that fucked up study that you put so much weight in that was so that that's so incestually, like institutional incest, yep. literally raped the data points to the point where we believed it like a bunch of sheep. And then you realize, oh, my God, they straight prison screwed the statistical portion of that.
1: You know, hey, just sort of jump back. In. I think I think point well taken, man. I, I, I think that uh, any research, uh, it really should be meant to answer a question. And, and sometimes it answers a question. It's not the question. You have to sort of incorporate the findings into your own operating environment. I completely agree. And, and the funny thing is, though, as more research is done, that, that database uh, grows. And, and so you do understand more about these devices. You know, initially, all of these junctional tourniquets were approved under emergency authorization. Okay, U.S. Uh, SOCOM uh, or another entity would request from the FDA an expedited review. They were approved for battlefield only. Uh, I think we're one of the few that actually had a, a subsequent 510K that uh, was thoroughly reviewed. And, and, uh, and so the battlefield only does not apply with us. And we've been, civil- we've been selling in the civilian market space for quite some time now. But the, the, what's odd is, so under the emergency authorization, you didn't have to do a whole lot of evidence. And, and part of that was the argument that, hey, we're, this is a heroic measure. We're, we're putting these on people that if we don't do something, they're going to die anyway. And and that's good to a point. But at some point, you want to know whether or not it's safe for humans. And at this point, okay, so we're now well over the seven-year point or six-year point that all the devices have been on the market space. We're still the only one that has human data that shows safety at all of these application sites. Uh, and, you know, it's, I think that – and that goes to the tissue pressure issue. You know, our, our bladder is a pressure limiter on the manometer that limits it to – you can't get above 300 millimeters mercury pressure on the tissue. And that was tested by both Fort Detrick in the Army and the, uh, and the Navy's medical expeditionary um, wing in San Antonio. Uh, in pressure chambers because it's important. We take people up in altitude uh, when we're evacuating them, the ambient pressure decreases, the inner bladder pressure increases, and the bleed-off pressure valve uh, prevents it from overpressurization. Or mm-hmm. somebody applying the, dice, uh, the, the device and getting amped up and they pump really hard, they can't overpressurize the device. Right. And that, that also communicates to the fact that, well, it's safer on the tissues. And this is where some of the other devices ran into problems with uh, the ISR finding the the combat ready clamp having very high uh, tissue pressures during their application of it, um, and Force finding that the SAM had very high application pressures as well um, when they applied it. Um, and then you know the the idea that when we do research, um, there th- everything can be hidden in statistics. Okay, mm-hmm. so just like your point of taking a certain statistic and blowing it out a proportion or using it to make an argument, sort of spin the study to say something you want, sometimes the statistics are hidden. Uh, so, you know, the idea that the, the, the SAM junctional tourniquet can't be applied to somebody whose who's circumference around their token are less than 27 inches was not, is not something that's openly known about but there's a limitation there um, that is
0: crazy man um, it, you're exactly right and JJ chime in because you I think were the were you the one that mentioned or maybe it was John that pulled up the instance of the, uh, the stabilizer the pelvic stabilizer uh, which is what it's based off of and it can't go in less than 27 inches and didn't in a study didn't they even pad the freaking cadavers now Oh,
1: I don't know, but I I, I think that those kinds Rumor. of data...
0: rumors, rumors. I tell you, rumors. My bad.
1: You know, <laughs> there think- are rumors that, that that occurred. I I don't
2: have any evidence, you know, or proof that that happened. But but either way, I think it's interesting to think that that 27 is, is as small as it could go. Like that, it's definitely an issue. Um, maybe not for our some of our larger guys, but like when I joined, I was a whopping 120 pounds. Right. Um, I'm fat now, but I wasn't then, you know? Like, um, I was incredibly tiny. So I, I might have been one of those people that didn't fit that particular item, which been a bummer.
0: I can think yeah, of a well, bunch I- of d- dudes that yeah, that we work with that, that don't fit that, that are just tall and lean or, or smaller dudes, man. Um, and uh, that's significant, man, but not widely known whatsoever.
1: Well, our, our device goes anywhere from uh, a, a 10-inch circumference uh, all the way up to 72 inches in, uh, circumference. So it's, uh, there's a lot of range there. And, and part of, uh, the, the advantage of our device is this real large bladder that we inflate. But regardless, so, you know, tissue pressures, the, the waist circumference. And, and so these studies can bring about some very interesting information when you know how to dig through it, look at it and, and apply it. I rely on our authoritative bodies. Okay, so like it or love it, criticisms, um, uh, present or not, the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care really does a yeoman's work at taking in a whole lot of data and trying to produce uh, a, a product that's helpful to the end user. And and they get a whole lot of hate. And, 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 and I hate it because... Uh, I think that if you look over the life of what that committee has done and how it's impacted casualty care in our country and in our allies around the world, I cannot tell you how many tens of thousands of lives have been saved because of simply the work that, that they did, what, what Frank Butler set up.
2: I totally agree, and, and I think it's important to know that almost all of them, if not all of them, that is not like their job. That is a, a <laughs> exactly. hobby or a dedication, if you will, Um, and a sacrifice that they make as well. So I think it's simply... But, you know, they hate hate us because we ain't us. Um,
1: (laughs) Well, but I will go one further. I feel like the evolution of even the leadership, you know, um, uh, now, I mean, the the folks at the helm uh, and and the folks that they have engaged uh, to be involved are really making positive impacts. And, And They have an overall desire to um, remove the device-specific names in the recommendations, which makes sense. If you're defining doctrine, you're not going to name winners and losers. But the problem is the history of the committee, they actually did do that. And in this situation, they only named one loser in the junctional tourniquet market, and it was me. Uh, and so we, we actually have uh, engaged the committee uh, and had a, a, a packet to request them reconsider change 13-3, provided them uh, the entire bibliography and literature uh, and, and, uh, and a request. Um, it, it was considered the 20 April meeting. And my understanding is that it may be have been the precipice to sort of push them over the edge to say, now it's time, let's remove all of the Uh, recommended device uh, references within the junctional hemorrhage area. And to be honest with you, that's going to be very helpful. It's going to, I think that then allows for for some in the, uh, not only the U.S. military, but allied militaries, uh, a lot of their purchasing had been restricted to that list, that that recommendation list. So I think it will open up the doors quite a bit. Um, I would hope that Uh, they might extend uh, just a little bit more grace and simply uh, communicate that although they're removing all of the device by name out of the uh, guidelines, that change 13-3 did not relate to what we currently market. Uh, Because unfortunately, what they said about the AAT has carried over and and thankfully it doesn't impede the special operations community because they don't they're not tied to following the committee's guidelines to a certain extent they are within that soft casavac program both right and like re- a re- code it's it's you know it's it's a law but it's it's got some wiggle room yeah well but the conventional units have no wiggle room you know so if it's not um, within that list uh, the folks that make purchasing and procurement decisions really sort of hit a brick wall when they're like, "Why isn't it on the approved list by this committee?" And and same thing with our allied partners overseas. And and so we've not been on a level playing field. And all I want is is a, an opportunity to bring what I think is a life-saving measure and put it to the hands of folks and just say, "Look, just 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 evaluate it. Take a look at it. See what you see what." others think about it see why others are using it so um, i'm hopeful that uh we might hear a little bit more from the committee at some point i'm interested to see how they sort of phrase the uh, the, the, uh, the change to the junctional hemorrhage section that'll be coming out is sometime in the relatively near future. I don't know that it's going to come out before SOMA. We'll be at the Special Operations Medical Association Scientific Assembly at the end of uh, this month, June 28th through July 2nd. The, uh, the vendor portion of that show, uh, that conference is June 29th and June 30th. And during those days, uh, North American Rescue is our North American distributor for the product. Uh, and, and I will be there with our team and be demonstrating the device, uh, every hour on the hour while the, uh, expo is open. And I would invite any of your listeners, if they're interested, come by and, and I'd be happy to meet them, answer questions, uh, uh, let them have some hands-on feel with the current device that's being fielded by, uh, a, a lot of, of guys. we have about 5,000 devices in the field uh, that have been sold, and, uh, and it's growing, uh, and, and that's exciting, but I, I think that it would open the uh, opportunity for the conventional guys, uh, which unfortunately take a lot of casualties to, uh, yeah. and, and, and sort of open the, the, the opportunity for others in the special operations environment to take another look at it uh, when I think, so many haven't heard from my company or the device in so long simply because the committee doesn't entertain it.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair.
1: You know, I mean, and like I think I alluded to it
2: earlier, but, you know, like I had said before, talking to you, like I had some concerns early on um, and I'm I'm happy and I've done everything I can to go back and make those recorrections of my statements um, since it's been addressed. I think that's the important piece as experts or, or at least attempting to be experts and professionals in our field is identifying when things change and, and then addressing it. Then we look at, I do the same thing with even like normal saline and lactate ringers. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they're not good uh, for what we use them for, for most, for the most part, for a lot of things. Uh, but I still find myself correcting some guys who are like, who are tossing the baby out with the bathwater and be like, well, then we just should never, ever have um, <laughs> fluids and things like that. Like, no, like, it has a use, it's just what we used it for wasn't proper. Um, in this case, there was, it was a good device, It just there were parts of it that were failing in the rescue section and the transport section. No big deal, or, or a big deal at the time, but no big deal now because it's addressed and changed. Um, and that's kind of the onus we, we have as professionals, but also that things like the Joint Trauma System and DHA and all of us have is when things change, uh, as as soon as possible, as soon as we can, we try to. We should be stating that and being like, hey, this this has changed, and we've looked at it, and or we plan on looking at it. You know, if they don't have the time, I get it. Like again, it's a side project for most of them, but these kind of things affect not only companies. You know, so it's not just about yeah. the bottom dollar. It's about the guys out there and the gals out there on the battlefield, especially because Rabot is not going
1: to be an option for a lot of them. Yeah, I man, and I, I, I like, uh, JJ, you mentioned about the fluids, and, and I uh, uh, I really appreciate uh, something I've heard from you in the past related to, you know, one of the things that we hear from guys is, that the thing is so big, where am I going to carry it? I mean, it's not, it's actually the smallest cube of any of the junctional tourniquets when it's packaged. It's the latest, uh, but, too. Uh, yeah. 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 And it's, I also... I heard, J.J., you talking about uh, placement in an aid bag, and <laughs> I, I loved your thoughts. Yeah, um, so, I mean, I, I know a lot of guys have heard me say it, um, and
2: I don't mind saying it again. Um, I like the enjoy it. Like, if your aid bag is just a bag of IFACs, pardon my French here, but you're pretty much I-fucked. Um, so, <laughs> like, your aid bag shouldn't be... Something that's carried around a bunch of IFAC materials, there's some you know, requisite diversity that needs to be in that mission. You know, part like problem set could be like a big part of how that aid bag is getting packed. And that aid bag should mostly be your heavy hitters, um, probably, you know, foot stomp bazillion times here, some rescue type equipment, um, because like I want to bring rescue back again and realize that, like, it doesn't happen, like, this problem set that we deal with doesn't happen on its, like, magical own little island. Like, they get hurt inside items, or areas, or buildings, or things that you need to get back into, and then you get back out of. Um, So if you can't do that on your own, then you should probably have gear to do that, and that's got to go somewhere. It should probably go you know, in your aid bag or close to it. But bottom line is your heavy hitters is what goes in your aid bag. Um, And I don't know if you've heard me talk about this as well, John, but part of that too is that's a, it can become like a visual signal itself in a communication platform, right? So I shouldn't be taking my my aid bag off for small boo-boos and just basic, you know, stomach ache. So once I take my aid bag off, those that know me and that work with me know that it's game on. Not only am I going to be where I'm at for a bit, um, but they probably need a litter. You know, and There's a, there a number of other things that it signifies that I won't like hijack this podcast for, but I think you kind of see the point of there should be space, and there is space in your A-bag because now you're not carrying buttloads of fluids. Hopefully you're cool um, and you're carrying some blood, so that's going to take up a little bit of space. Got it, but it didn't take all the space up. And there's actually bags for that. Um, I've seen some pretty badass dudes out there that, that I have some, a lot of respect for, even just hip, you know, belt that thing. So they've got a whole unit and there's two units on the, on their hip, like an old school, uh, Western almost. Uh, but either way, like my point is there's space in that aid bag if you do it right. Um, and if you don't have space in that, or you, if you're cramming the zipper closed, like I did on the way home from vacation last, um, you're doing it
0: wrong. All right, so ended up here. Just as kind of final thing here is I'll, I'll reiterate. Is I think we can go back in some of our podcasts and talk about our med loadout stuff, where we go into that pretty significant uh, with what John yeah. was just, uh, what JJ was just talking about. Um, is that you know that that bag is typically going to be your big boy toys. That's what differentiates you from everyone else being a medic. And so if if you find yourself Overloading that to where the zippers are going to pop, you need to probably think about dispersing that gear throughout your operators, uh, changing the inventory of what their IFACs are um, to carry those things, um, and spread that medical loadout across your your area of operation. Uh, take some of that maybe down into your march belt and be able to gain some room to where when that pack comes off, it's because you're utilizing the skill sets and knowledge that you have, uh, you're certified in, right? That separates you as the medic. And so just kind of your big boy toys go in that. And I think that uh, will clear up quite a bit of room for people. On um, the AAGT. real quick, I think it's kind of amusing to think about the people that we've worked with, that's all they use. That being said, I think who should consider that AAGT is anybody that finds themselves in a position where that, that injury is going to be there. But specifically, You definitely want to consider that for anything where you are going to be doing anything that's rescue. And rescue uh, alone can just be on horizontal movement of various packaging and and throwing the back of, of vehicles of opportunity and things like that just because of the way that it doesn't displace with casualty movement, let alone thinking about high angle, confined space, structural collapse, vehicle extrication. Being able to put that on somebody while you are still trying to get them out. I can tell you, is unbelievable. You can get some very complex extrications out there, especially in non-armored vehicles. That is very problematic. Now, in armored vehicles, you can still run into some great complexity uh, with vehicle fires and the fact that sometimes you have to remove the steering wheel to get a driver out, etc. Where that takes time, they're bleeding out, and you cannot put any of the other devices on them with any efficacy whatsoever, until you fully extricate them, which is which is problematic to say the least. And that being said, taking it from a soft standpoint, going into USAR teams obviously should be a USAR loadout, man. Being able to take this into those crawl spaces that you're getting into after hurricanes, earthquakes, you name it, uh, is a huge, huge advantage. So from a rescue standpoint, there's not even a, there's, a, you know, it sounds maybe narrow-minded or biased or anything like that, but you know, when you think about it, you realize there's actually one choice, and and that's the A A J T for that. Because I will have everything else will fail um, because of the way that we have to move our casualties during a rescue operation. There is not another device that can manage hemorrhage in junctional areas, and I can still continue to move them and package them the way that I have to to be able to extricate people. Go ahead.
2: Uh, I, I was just agreeing absolutely, and if there is something out there that somehow is snuck under the radar, like please hit us up in comments or yeah,
0: please do or please do. I, I
2: for us, you know.
0: I, I, would, I would I would love to hear it, but I I just don't think it's true. It is, and so when you look at the key performance parameters. That's, that's real, that, that is it. Um, yep. and so, you know, I, and that's why, you know, maybe I was a little harsh on TC3. I have a great respect for TC3. I've been, you know, working with some, a lot of those members since the origin of the committee, and even prior to with, uh, with Butler when he was Captain Butler in, in Tampa, uh, as so-called command surgeon, uh, just an enormous amount of respect. A lot of the things that I have is, is they've done more for, for pre-hospital medicine, um, not just in the military, but how it bled over in the TECC and all on the civilian side, then you can you cannot quantify the amount that they've they've given to the community. Um, you know, my main concern is just people don't not understanding the research, right? Which isn't all on them whatsoever. And so, my last point, and then I'll give it up for everyone else's final point is learn as an end user, learn to study the studies. Is be able to take the bullshit out, understand typical wording and verbiage or uh, statistics that shit gets hidden in that is irrelevant and or or just n- completely inapplicable. Um, you know, when you look, and I think a great example is reading through the analysis of certain studies. When you look at the one that uh, Crossroads was talking about, was with the failure points. Okay, so it looks bad. If you just read the opening analysis or overview and you stop there you're going to be under the impression that it failed. This thing did not do its job until you look into it. And it's like, Oh, but if someone tapped out with, you know, whether it coincides with their menstrual cycle or whatever, it, it, like, that's a failure. And you're like, Oh God. Okay. That puts it into a completely different context. Um, yep. So learn to study the studies because you can tear those things apart for
2: Absolutely. the application, your I, I, environment. Keep context in, in mind. Um, like I always say, there's another group of people that we that we know pretty well that take context out on a regular basis to manipulate text. Um, we call them
1: ISIS. Uh, like, don't be ISIS. To, yeah, I I just uh, want to thank you guys. I appreciate the opportunity to coming on and uh, just talking about these things openly. Uh, I, uh, I I I am willing to do anything, including sacrifice my device, if it helps the end user and bring somebody else home. Uh, I I think the the fact that we've had some uh, number of lives saved with the device means everything to me. I think we can save more. And then you know at some point I'll have to come back on and talk about the other things, uh, the uh, torso plate, which is an adjunct product that. Uh, It can be applied for uh, uh, non-compressible torso hemorrhage also by a first responder, and it looks like it's very effective. Uh, We we have researchers at American Heart Association looking at its effect on cardiac arrest. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Australians did a traumatic cardiac arrest study, and there's one being conducted in San Antonio in civilian EMS as well. And then the Gates Foundation is looking at our torso plate flipped around and put over the pelvis as a potential solution for postpartum hemorrhage in third-world countries. And you guys know where we go, where the U.S. military goes, we we travel to a lot of third-world countries, and we spend a lot of time helping indigenous people. And so I think that, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, um, saying that we don't need to look at this device again when, in fact, there may be utility in this device well beyond the conversation that we've had uh, today. So. Again, thank you guys for just letting me uh, come on, and, uh, and I look forward to seeing you guys in person soon.
0: Absolutely, hey. and thanks for coming along for the ride. Yeah, I appreciate it too, man, and we'll talk soon. And I want to say this just because of what you just said with the flipping it around thing. Um, I'm going to say right now they should name it the Missy Elliott technique, right? It's to hang down, flip, and reverse it. So I'm going to end it on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Take care. Right. See you. Right, thanks, thanks. John. Bye-bye.
1: Yeah. Now I scream like Tarzan. Woo.
2: I'm rigging, disrupting my style is off. Awesome.